welcome to Everything with the Girls, a podcast for true crime and conspiracy theory lovers. We did start out wanting to cover various topics from true crime to mental health, but as time's gone on, we've realised how obsessed we are with true crime. <laughs> We're not going to commit any yeah. crimes, don't worry. So welcome. It's nice to have you, and we hope that you enjoyed this new podcast. Yeah. This is the second time we've recorded it, so... We are on holiday at the moment. It's our last night in Scotland. We had some technical difficulties. We are currently in Inverness. I feel like if there's any Scottish people... That wasn't Scottish. Was that Scottish? Well, it sounded like you were trying to be, but... So we've had the best time. So we did, what, three days in Edinburgh? Yeah. And we did everything. And we saw a ghost yesterday. If you 100%. S- if you saw our Instagram. I need to put it on a highlight, actually. Yeah, yeah, we'll put it on a highlight so you can see there's definitely a ghost there, though. And if you tell me there's not, then we're going to block you. <laughs> um, and today... We'll block the very minimal people that actually yeah, You are one follower and I'm going to block you. Um, and today we went to Loch Ness. And I saw Nessie. Yeah, yeah. About 15 times. Although, for about an hour and a half before seeing Nessie, we realised why Nessie couldn't wasn't possible yeah we realized she doesn't exist so it was probably just a log we had a good time anyway so yeah so today's our last day we're in this fucking spooky hotel (laughs) i think this hotel is spooky this would have been like if this was like a a big house at one point this would have been like the servants quarters yeah because they used to be right at the top didn't they yeah i mean we probably should have got like a hilton well, yeah, but the bed is very comfortable, I will But we say went that. for a spooky one anyway. We also we had went... a massive Indian dinner. Yeah, so I've um, already had a nap and I'm awake again. It's half eight. Yeah. I've reawoken. And I asked Grace when she went downstairs to get me a mug of peppermint tea and she's come up with a full cup and saucer with a teapot, so I feel very posh. Service. I'm not used to this in Liverpool, but anyway, let's get to it. So... This week, we're going to be talking about a case that's easily won everyone in the UK, um, probably worldwide, as heard about. Um, like I said, by the way, this is Lydia, if you hadn't already noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said in the last episode, I was, well, I wasn't taught about the case, but I learned about the case when I was very young, because my mother used to threaten to take me to see Ian Brady if I kept being naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Such a horrendous thing to say to your kid. I mean, well, it shut me up. So, <laughs> uh, as long as she didn't follow through on it, it's all right. It's Marion right Healy, it's... Parenting Techniques 101. I mean, it's all right to threaten your kids as long as you don't follow through on it, right? Yeah. Well, that's the way I see parenting. Yeah, as. I'm pretty sure that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in no way fit to be a parent at the moment. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that can just teach you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, um, Ian Brady was held in the psychiatric hospital, Ashworth, which is probably 10 minutes down the road from my parents' home. So it's a bit, like, pretty creepy, pretty creepy. Yeah, so just a warning, it's not a case for the light-hearted, um, we will be talking about, like, the murder and rape of children, so yeah, just a heads up that this might not be one for you. Also, this hotel is not soundproof. So if you hear people Mm. walking past, it's not a ghost. It's just the other guests. Could be also a ghost. Yeah, it could also be a ghost. But yeah. The Moores murders were carried out by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley between July 1963 and October 1965. 
in and around Manchester, England, which is the north of England, if you didn't know. So the victims were five children, Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans, aged between 10 and 17. At least four of them were sexually assaulted. Two of the victims were discovered in graves dug on Saddleworth Moor, which is, again, just outside Man- Manchester, I'd say, but northeast. Um, and the third grave was discovered there in 1987, 20 years after Brady and Hinley's trial. Keith Bennett's body is also thought to be buried somewhere on the moor, but despite repeated searches, it remain- remains undiscovered, which is Super just sad. fucking horrendous. The pair were charged with only in the deaths of Kilbride, Downey and Evans and received life sentence for each of them. The investigation was reopened in 1985 after Brady was reported to having confessed to the murders of Reed and Bennett. After confessing to these additional murders, Brady and Hindley were taken separately to Saddleworth Moor to assist in the search for the graves, which I just found crazy. Why would they want to assist in it? It's like when, you know, when Ted Bundy was like, well, if you want to catch a psychopath, I can tell you how. Mm. Yeah, but they're not helping to find other psychopaths. He was helping to find someone. Was he? Yeah. Fuck, I can't remember who it was now, but wasn't it? It was like the Green River Killer. Who? Uh, Brady? No. No, that's Um, what I'm saying. Brady and Henley, they weren't trying to find other people. I'm talking about, well, I mean, technically they were. Yeah, trying but, to find their victims. Yeah, but they weren't trying to help other investigations for, like, another killer. No, that's true. Did I say Ian Brady? I meant Ted Bundy. No, Did I, I say Ted Bundy? At first, yeah, but then you said the Green River Killer, and I thought that's an American one, because I thought you were talking about um, Ian Brady. Um, Characterised by the press as the most evil woman in Britain, which is not a stretch. I will agree with the press on that one thing. Henley made several appeals against her life sentence, claiming that she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. And like I said, the last recording, which you obviously won't hear, but I think she's probably not the right judge of character to say that she's reformed. Listen, if she says she's reformed, she's reformed, okay. <laughs> a leopard cannot change its thoughts. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, she was never released. Oh, thank fuck Spoiler for that. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> She died in 2002, age 60, after serving 36 years in prison. Brady was diagnosed as a psychopath in 1985 and confined to a high-security facility, which is Ashworth Hospital, like I said earlier. Just... Claim to fame. Is that yeah, your claim to fame? Yeah, it's literally my only claim to fame <laughs> is a serial murderer. <laughs> um, he made it clear that he never wished to be released and repeatedly asked to be allowed to die. He died in 2017 at Ashworth, aged 79. And I mean... He died of, like... I'm happy they never allowed him to die. Yeah, he di- He didn't die of old age, but... It was, co- like, complications yeah. with his old age. Like, they would not let him die. They were like, nah. nah, you can live forever and ever. Yeah, you can deal with what you've done. I think it's so funny, like, the irony that Myra wanted to be released and Brady just mm. wanted to die, and then she died 15 years before him, and exactly. he just had to, like, carry on living. Exactly. Uh the murders were a result of what Malcolm McCulloch, professor of forensic psychiatry at Car- Cardiff University, called a concatenation. Concatenation. Concatenation but of I'm circumstances, looking... but I don't know what that means. Now I'm looking at it, I'm like, it's not even a word. Concatenation of circumstances. But I imagine it's a... Uh... Anyway. Anyway, let's just give it that. 
The trial judge, Mr Justice Fenton Atkinson, described Radiant Hindley in his closing remarks as two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. Their crimes were the subject of extensive worldwide media coverage and as some of the most infamous crimes committed by a couple. Certainly the most famous crimes in England, we would uh, say. Yeah, I mean, I don't really agree with that because, like, I, you know, I'm obsessed with Fred and Rose West. But I, me, I think they probably are a bit more famous. Yeah. Worldwide, definitely. I think because they were... I think they always the, kept popping up. I think the infamity of their crimes, I think Fred and Rose win. Yeah. No, not the infamity, that's not the right word. But, like, how... Depraved. Yeah, fucked up their crimes were. I think Fred and Rose win, in my opinion. But I definitely think, yeah, like, Myra and Ian were more famous. But I think, also, they were more famous because they kept popping up in the media. Mm. So, every couple of years, they'd want a bit more attention. And I think it's also, like, because... Myra was so young. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian was a bit like Ted Bundy. People were more interested, weren't they? Whereas yeah, Fred definitely. West was literally a fucking monster. He was so minging. Yeah. So let's start with Ian Brady. Yeah. I mean, let's do it. Let's You've got just, to do it at some point. Let's just talk about him first, and then we'll get to Myra, lovely Myra. But first, let's talk about Brady. Okay. So Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, Scotland as Ian Duncan Stewart on the 2nd of January 1938 to Margaret Peggy Stewart, an unmarried tea room waitress. And yes, that makes him a Capricorn. Again, I only know about Virgos. I'm not great with the other signs and what it means. So the identity of Brady's father has never actually been ascertained, although his mother says that he was a reporter working for a Glasgow newspaper who died three months before Brady was born. Stuart had little support, and after a few months, she was forced to give her son into the care of Mary and John Sloan, a local couple with four children of their own. Now, I think what's... what's Not interesting, but, I mean, it's interesting, I guess, for people to know, because I didn't know before, but she basically gave Brady up in, like, an illegal adoption. No, I don't think it was illegal. It was like they were the guardians. Unofficial kind of thing. So she basically... What did she do? Like, write an article in a newspaper? She wrote, like, an advertisement for the window of, like, a newsagent's. And she offered to pay them £1 a week um, to look after him. Bearing in mind the Sloans, they went... They already had, like, three or four other children. Yeah. And they weren't well off. Like... I can't imagine they could really afford to keep them, but they were known to be that sort of family. Just to yeah, so they they were actually a, a really good family, and she kind of said, you know, as long as you feed him and love him, like that's all I really care about. Yeah, yeah, and she still went round to see him every night and spent all weekend with him when she could. And so Brady took their family name and became known as Ian Sloan. So obviously he was happy about it. Yep. And like Lydia just said, Margaret. Um, Went to visit him all the time throughout his childhood. Mm-hmm. They had a good relationship as far as what people have said. So various authors have stated that Ian tortured animals, but he's objected to this accusation his whole life. And I think personally, I mean, if you're going to admit that you killed kids, but you don't torture animals, like I am on the side of believing see, that. Yeah, I don't see why he would w- want to lie about that. Why would you be like, yeah, I'm a paedophile kid murderer, but I, I don't touch animals. Yeah. I think that's just a case of people trying to understand him more, being like, well, he must have... Trying to define him. Triad, like... He can't be defined. But to be honest, he can't be. Like, yeah, he, is a bit he of an had anomaly. a lot of empathy. From what 
I've seen and read, he did have a lot of empathy towards animals and stuff, and it was humans he couldn't connect with. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, it's just weird. Age nine, he visited Loch Lomond with his family, where he reportedly discovered an affinity for the outdoors. And a few months later, the family moved to a new council house on the overspill estate of Pollock. He was accepted for Shawlands Academy, a school for above-average pupils. He was really intelligent, wasn't he? Yeah. Like a really high IQ. Yeah. They have to be the smartest person It's funny, in the room. because with, like, with, like, serial killers, you either have really, really intelligent people, or you have, like, people with really, really low IQs that are considered idiots. Mm. Like, with the high IQs, it's like... It's like that they let it boost their ego, so they have to be the most intelligent person in the room. And if they're not, it's they feel like they're it's losing like they're control. They're trying to compensate for something. Yeah, yeah. At Shawlands, Ian's behaviour worsened, and as a teenager, he twice appeared before a juvenile court for housebreaking. He left the academy aged fifteen and took a job as a tea boy at Harland and Wolf Shipyard in Govan. Nine months later, he began working as a butcher's messenger boy. He had a girlfriend, Evelyn Grant. But their relationship ended when he threatened her with a flick knife after she visited a dance with another boy. Um, (laughs) Okay. He again appeared before the courts, this time nine charges against him, shortly before his 17th birthday, sorry. He was placed on probation on the condition that he leave Glasgow, or leave Scotland, rather. Yeah, by this point his mum had moved down to Manchester as well. Yeah. So essentially what's happened is... He's being caught threatening this girl and he's probably had more things added on to that. And instead of him going to the jail, because he is only young, the judge has been like, well, you best get out of Scotland then. He deported him from Scotland, essentially. His mum was living in Manchester, so he went to live with her and that's how he ended up down south. So, like Lydia said, by then, um, Ian's mum had moved to Manchester and married an Irish fruit merchant named Patrick Brady. Patrick got Ian a job as a fruit porter at Smithfield Market and Ian took Patrick Brady's name, thus becoming Ian Brady. They were, like, he got on well with Patrick as well, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, they had a good relationship. This is the weird thing, is that you almost, with how messed up he ended up being, you almost want him to have come from a really bad background and try and find that sort of justification, but he didn't. He had had a better life than most kids at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, his mum could have easily just abandoned him. Yeah. And left him at an orphanage. Mm. And he would have been in the system until he was, what, 18. Mm. He had a pretty good life. He might not have had all the money in the world and all this, but there's plenty of kids he would have killed for that. And yet he just ended up being a fucking wanker. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's no way to describe it. Within a year of moving to Manchester, Brady was caught with a sack full of lead seals he had stolen and was trying to smuggle out of the market. So, what happened, according to Brady, is some guy in, like, a lorry, is this right? Gave him, like, a sack of lead seals. Yeah, so from from what I can remember from the Morbid podcast, um, they did a really good episode on it as well. Essentially, Ian was set up, or... He took the fall when it wasn't when it wasn't his fault. It might not have been a direct setup, but and he was caught with this stock. Let's these, say these things he, he shouldn't have. But the he lead seals. He yeah. didn't realise what they were. Yeah. So the police catch him, and he's just like, "I'm gonna just tell the truth. Like it's not a big deal. Like yeah, I thought, wasn't doing anything wrong." Yeah. He thought he'd just get a fine, maybe. So he thought, yeah, he thought he would just get a fine or something, but he was actually sent to Strangeways Prison for three months. 
And strange weed is not a nice place. No. I I mean even now, like yeah. never mind back then. But because he was under eighteen, he was sentenced to two years in a boar stall for training. Quote. He was sent to Latchmere House in London and then Hatfield Borstall in West Riding of Yorkshire. After being discovered drunk on hooch, he was then moved to a much tougher unit in Hull. Um, I think I read somewhere that like this, he became like an alcoholic pretty yeah, bad like, now while he was in it prison. It was quite bad, yeah. So released on the 14th of November 1957, Brady returned to Manchester where he took a labouring job, which he hated, obviously. Who the fuck would like one of them? I think he was more, no of a, a, more of a writer and reader than a He's more of an intellect, you know. Yeah, inside job rather than outside jobs. Um, and was dismissed from another job in a brewery. Deciding to, quote, better himself, Brady obtained a set of instruction manuals on bookkeeping from a local public library, with which he astonished his parents by studying alone in his room for hours. For anyone else, you'd think that was a good part of the story? I mean, I still kind of... Do like did he have did he actually have an intention of like bettering himself? Maybe. Maybe well it was In which case less, I'm proud of you. I mean probably less I wanna better myself more these labouring and brewery jobs uh he thought it was beneath him, basically. Yeah. In January nineteen fifty nine Brady applied for and was offered a clerical job at Millwoods, a wholesale chemical distribution company based in Gorton. He was regarded by his colleagues as a quiet punctual but short-tempered young man he read books including teach yourself german and mein kampf as well as works on nazi atrocities he rode a tiger cub motorcycle which he used to visit the pennines i find that so strange i mean talking about his job and then like oh by the way he was a nazi yeah. Like, By the way, he read Mein Kampf. I don't know that in why you would ever read Mein Kampf unless, like, you had to for university reasons. Like, is it something you can even buy? I doubt yeah. Waterstone stock it. Well, no, but I was going to say Amazon, but I don't think Amazon was around in 1959. But... No, obviously, but yeah, I guess you could. I guess I don't know. There's someone. He's got a guy. Yeah, <laughs> guy in the pub. He's got a German guy. Let me just take my hair off. So, yeah, that is Brady up until 1959. Um, Two years before he meets Myra. So let's have a little talk about Myra. Let's get to know her, shall we? The most evil woman in Britain. She's just misunderstood. (laughs) Okay. Hindley was born in Crumpshaw on the 23rd of July 1942 and raised in Gorton, which was then a working class area of Manchester. Is it nice now? Um, I don't know. Gordon's like a horrible sounding name. Yeah. <clears throat> I still imagine it to be a shithole. Maybe. Um, so yeah, her parents were Nellie and Bob Hinley. Bob was an alcoholic who beat her regularly when she was a young child. The family's house was in a poor condition and Hinley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double bed. Their living situation deteriorated even further when her little sister Maureen was born in August 1946. And about a year later, Hinley, who was then five, was sent to live with her grandmother nearby. I imagine because they just didn't have the space for her. Yeah. Yeah. And she fucking loved her grandma. Yeah, that's true. She had a really good relationship with her grandma. Um, Hindley's father served in the parachute regiment and had been stationed in North Africa, Cyprus and Italy during the Second World War. He'd been known in the army as the hard man and expected his daughter to be equally as tough. He taught her to fight and insisted that she stick up for herself. Again, she was around five at this point. But yeah, so if him being an alcoholic, if he served in World War Two, 
not much of a stretch to say he probably had PTSD. Yeah, and I think in whenever this was, 1946, that was probably not really a recognised thing. Exactly. When Hindley was eight, a local boy scratched her cheeks and drew blood. She burst into tears and ran to her father. He then threatened to leather her, quote, if she didn't retaliate against this boy. Hindley found the boy later and knocked him down with a series of punches. She wrote later, At eight years old, I'd scored my first victory. Malcolm McCulloch, who was the Cardiff University professor, um, wrote that Hindley's relationship with her father brutalised her. She was not only used to violence in the home, but was rewarded for it outside as well. When this happens at a young age, it can distort a person's reaction to such situations for life. So, again... She, it taught her that the only way her father would be nice to her and like say he was proud of her is if she was violent against others. Yeah, because she comes. If she's she, a bully, yeah. She goes. She goes back and punches this guy, and then when she comes back, she tells her dad like I did it, and he's he basically says to her like I've never been so proud of you. Yeah. And like to an eight year old. Like, yeah, that's messed up. They're not gonna recognize that that's messed up. They're just gonna be like, oh, he's not being mean to him. He's not beating me up. He must be happy. Let's carry this on. Like, so one of Hindley's closest friends was Michael Higgins, who lived nearby. In 1957, he invited her to go to go swimming with other friends at a local disused reservoir, but Hindley instead went out elsewhere with another friend. Higgins drowned in the reservoir that day, and Hindley, a good swimmer was deeply upset and blamed herself because she wasn't there to save him. Mm. I mean... This, like, bothered her because I yeah. think she brings it up, like, even when she's, like, in prison, she brings it up again. Like, it yeah. obviously bothered her. After Higgins' death, she collected a wreath and his funeral at St. Francis's Monastery in Gorton Lane, where Hindley would be baptised as a Catholic in 1942, had a lasting effect on her. Hindley's mother agreed to a father's insistence that Hindley be baptised Catholic but only on the condition that she not be sent to a Catholic school her mother believed that all monks taught was the catechism Hindley was increasingly drawn to the Catholic church after she started at Ryderbrow Secondary Modern which is the secondary school high school for people who don't call it secondary school (laughs) Um, and began taking instruction for formal reception into the church soon after Higgins' funeral she took up the confirmation name Veronica and received her first communion in November 1958. Hindley's first job was at a junior clerk at a local electrical engineering firm. She ran errands, made tea and typed and was well liked enough that when she lost her first week's wage packet, the other girls took up a collection to replace it for her. At 17, she became engaged after a short courtship, called it off several months later after deciding that the young man was immature and unable to provide her with the life she wanted. She took weekly judo lessons at the local school and farm partners reluctant to train with her, as she often was a bit slow to release her grip on them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now. That's a bit foreshadowing. Um, she took a job at Bratby and Hinchcliffe, an engineering company in Gorton, but was dismissed for being absent. After six months. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not good with the words, okay? So, on January 1961, the 18-year-old Hindley joined Millwards as a typist and the world was never going to be the same again. Because she (laughs) met... So dramatic. She met the one and only Brady. 
she soon became infatuated with Brady. Despite learning he had a criminal record, she didn't care. She wanted yeah. a bad boy. It just... She'd had the boring boy, now she wanted the bad boy. She began to write a diary, and although she had dates with other men, some of the entries detail her fascination with Brady, whom she eventually spoke to for the first time on the 27th of July. But this diary... We could, I, we it was so creepy. So we couldn't find like the actual entries, but we listened to a podcast about this case, and some of the entries are fucking weird. She's like... Um, I saw Ian today. When will Ian speak to me? I've been waiting for months. Or like, yeah, I saw Ian today. Or I wonder, I wonder if Ian likes this or that or da da da. And then what was the other one? Oh yeah. So then they finally speak, and the entry on the twenty seventh of July is: spoke to Ian today. Expect me to change for him. <laughs> she is my worst kind of woman. She's honestly. yeah. She's fucking weird. Anyway. They, I think they finally spoke because, like, she was in, like, effectively the staff room reading this book, and Ian was like, oh, this girl reads books, okay. Oh, my God, she knows how to okay, read. Okay, an intellect like myself. So he finally started to chat to her. The, over the next few months, she continued to make these entries, but grew increasingly disillusioned with him until November, uh, December 22nd, when Brady asked her on a date to the cinema. Their dates followed a regular pattern. A trip to the cinema, usually towards an X-rated film, and then back to Hindley's house to drink German wine. I just need to say this, okay? The first... The movie they went to see on their first date was the Nuremberg Trials. <laughs> like... Just a light, bit of light watching. I mean, I love a horror film. I love an X-rated film. But you take me to see that? It, it, I'm not going to speak to you again. And then... And then they had sex on their first date, so... In front of the fire, like, romance. But before this, Hindley was, like, you know, she was, like, a solid Catholic. She was a virgin. She, like, didn't want to get very sex modest. before marriage, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then Ian comes along, and the bad boy wins her over. Yeah. And the Nuremberg trials just really get her going. She just mutes God out of that brain. She can't like, help herself. Something about Brady and the Nuremberg trials, it just all made sense. There's just not enough space for everyone. No. Brady gave her reading material, and the pair spent their work lunch breaks reading aloud to one another from accounts of Nazi atrocities. Can you imagine, like, going to heat your fucking soup up? But and also that Myra time. and Ian are there just reciting Mein Kampf to each other. But, like, that at that time, the people working there, a lot of the men, if they're older, will probably have been in the war. Mm. Everyone's been connected to the war. Yeah, that's Can true. Can you imagine walking into that? Yeah, like, but like, um, that's so disrespectful as well. Yeah, that is true, actually. It's like you're glamorising what happened and the views the Nazis had and my son, brother, uncle, whatever, has just died to fight them. Like, Well, it gets worse. Oh, it gets a fuckload worse, but I just have to say as, that. As time goes on, Hindley begins to change her appearance to fit the look of Brady's ideal women. So I'm, I'm pretty sure she had bleached blonde hair already. Um, I think she did it just before she met him. Yeah, because um, she re- she noticed that the blonde women got more attention from men. So she had this fucking horrendous peroxide blonde hair, but she also then began to um, apply thick lipstick, wear like knee high boots, short skirts, very risque. She was turning into a proper little minx. 
I mean, not really risque for then, but risque for her as well because she was very, very Catholic. She was very modest. She was saying, Mum, Dad, Grandma, don't care. This is what I want to look like. This is who I am. Let me be me. Yep. Um, Brady would carry around a photograph of Emma Grease. Yeah, Emma Grease. An SS guard at the Nazi concentration camps of Ravensbrück. Sorry if I said that wrong. And Auschwitz. And I think he also gave Myra this photo. I think they had a copy of it, yeah. I think when she was arrested, didn't she have it, like, in her pocket or, like, in her Bible or something when she got arrested? Maybe, yeah. Because he was like, this is what I want you to look like and be, so can you please do that? And she was like, yeah, sure, Ian, anything for you. But even this um, agrees, she was not a looker. I know Myra wasn't either, but, like... You know what I mean, though. It's not like she was like really pretty or, or anything like that. Oh no, but it wasn't about that. He liked that. her for her power. That's like... why he was with Hindi, though. He never. He always said like, I didn't think she was pretty. He was <laughs> yeah. fucking savage about her. Yeah. He was like, Nah, I didn't like her hair. She wasn't very pretty, but you know, she did what I told her to do. So. I mean, he still managed to fuck her. Like. Yeah. It's reported by some that in a letter to a childhood friend, Myra mentioned an incident where Brady had drugged her. Um, but she also wrote about her obsession with him. And a few months later, she asked her friend to destroy this letter. In her 30,000-word plea for parole, written in 1978 and 1979, submitted to the Home Secretary, Merlin, Merlin Rees, Hinley stated, quote, Within months, Brady had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion, end quote. I mean, the earth is flat. And the moon isn't green cheese. Yes, the moon is not... White cheese. Yes, so... More for you, Myra. it's Swiss cheese. Yeah. Just saying. Just saying. The couple were regulars at the library, borrowing books on philosophy as well as crime and torture. They also read works by Marquis de Sade. Marquis. Marquis, Marquis. Frederick... Nietzsche, I don't know how to say that. And Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. That's the most important one. Yeah. Although, That's a big book. Yeah, there's a fucking book. Although Hinley was not a qualified driver, she often hired a van in which the couple planned bank robberies. Um, the bank robberies, I think, were like always a plan. Just a way for them to get the adrenaline. Before they, before they even like thought, let's kill kids. They were like always like, we're gonna rob banks, but they never actually did it. Mm. Um, Hinley befriended George Clitheroe, the president of the Cheadle Rifle Club, and on several occasions she visited two local shooting ranges. Clitheroe, also puzzled by her interest, arranged for her to buy a twenty-two rifle from a gun merchant in Manchester. She also asked to join a pistol club, but she was a poor shot and allegedly often bad-tempered. So Clitheroe told her that she was unsuitable. She did, however, manage to purchase a Webley 45 and a Smith & Wesson 38 from other members of the club. But this wasn't until, like, into the crimes. I think it was, like, after the first the first or second murder. Definitely after the first one, yeah. That, they start, that she, like, bought these guns. So this wasn't, like, before they started murdering. So it's a bit of a mixed-up timeline. Brady and Hindley's plans for robbery came to nothing... But they became interested in photography. This was again like after I think like the second or third murder. Mm. They would like take photos of <laughs> they would like take photos of where their victims had been buried, but it wasn't until after 
They'd like scout the location first. What was Leslie, the third victim? It was the two boys first. So it wasn't until like after they killed Leslie, or no, before they killed Leslie, that they started really getting into photography because that's the whole. Mm. So they basically used to commemorate the days that they would do this. So yeah, so the whole the whole time they were committing crimes, they were taking photos of where the graves were. But it wasn't until like the third or fourth murder where they murdered Leslie Ann Downey that they really got into photography and were like taking posed horrendous photos yeah and he had like a red room and he was developing these photos so the photography obsession develops like after they've committed a few murders yeah Brady already owned a box brownie which he did use to take photographs of Hilly and her dog puppet but he upgraded to a more sophisticated model and also purchased lights in a dark room after they'd already committed several murders. Yeah. Because there was no sending those um, film canisters to the Kodak shop. Like, and we think... all know that the the counter people used to just look at the photos once they were developed. The pair started to take photographs of each other that at the time would have been considered explicit. I'm not sure if they would have been anymore, but... I mean, what's explicit these days, let's be honest. That's fucking true. Anything goes. For Hinley, this definitely demonstrated a marked change from her earlier shy and more prudish nature. Mm. She was finally... I don't know. Ian's puppet. I mean... So, yeah. Let's get into the murders, shall we? Um... So on the 12th of July 1963, Brady told Hinley that he wanted to commit the perfect murder. They would lie in bed after having sex and discuss their plans. During their planning, they set out a number of rules that they would have to follow in order to go ahead with the murders and get away with them. Some of these rules included, one, to have no connection in any way to their victims. Two, to take a spare change of clothes that matched what they were already wearing. They would need to change straight away after committing the murder, tear up the clothing that they were wearing and burn it right away. Three, to use new instruments and weapons every single time, never to be used more than once. Four, they would clean the car straight away, waiting no time at all to clean away any potential evidence. Five, to take nothing from the victims or the crime scene. If they did, it would be kept in a suitcase that Brady had arranged and was kept in a lost luggage section of a Manchester train station. And six, they would always have to have an alibi for a roundabout time of the crimes, one that would need to be remembered for up to two weeks following that date in case they were ever questioned about it. I mean, I think they had more rules, but this those is, are the ones that I remember. This is where his Capricorn gene comes in. Love a good list. He loves the list. And he he, the they list. wrote these down because I'm pretty sure when they got arrested, the, this list was also in Myra's Bible. Yeah. So they wrote this list down. But remember these rules because they're very important. Because silly little Myra can't resist breaking them. You just can't trust anyone these days, can you? Nope. Just a simple set of six instructions, Myra. Well, I think there were more, but... Why can't she just follow them? There was only six that I could remember. Um, after work one day, he instructed her to drive a borrowed van around while he followed on his motorcycle. When he spotted a likely victim, he would flash his headlights. Driving down Gordon Lake... 
Driving down Gorton Lane, Brady saw a young girl and signalled Hidley, who didn't stop because she recognised the little girl as an eight-year-old neighbour of her mother. Sometime after 7.30pm on Froxmas Street, Brady signalled Hinley to stop for a 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Now this first one, Hinley didn't, Hinley didn't stop for this eight-year-old girl and then like later on down the road they stopped and Ian was like, why didn't you stop? And Myra was like, you know, I know that girl and also she's eight. It breaks the first rule. Um... Yes, yeah, I'm not going to break your first rule, Ian. Yeah. Also, she's eight years old. We should get an older victim because an eight-year-old is going to cause a lot of backfire controversy. People are going to be wondering where they're she's They're going to care more, basically, aren't they? But, like, a 16-year-old, you might think, oh, she ran away from home or something. Yeah. Maybe she had a secret boyfriend. Yeah. Sorry, she's got a yawn. <sighs> so, Pauline was on her way to a local dance when the couple spotted her. She had planned to go with a couple of her friends, but her friends' mothers had told them last minute that they had to stay home because there would be alcohol at this dance this left Pauline to go alone only being allowed to go by her mum because she assured her that she would meet other friends there before she was stopped by the couple she bumped into one of her friends who had been told they weren't allowed to go her friend decided not to tell Pauline that her mum had now said that she can go to the dance with her instead she decided to surprise Pauline by turning up at the dance her friend took a different route to the dance hall and was surprised when she turned up to not to find Pauline there. Little did she know that between the time of her saying goodbye to Pauline and arriving at the dance, Pauline will have been abducted by Brady and Hindley. That's so sad, isn't it? Oh, it's just horrendous. And, like, with the way the houses are set in that area, she probably would have been walking dile- directly parallel to yeah, Pauline. Yeah, because they're, like, blocks. Yeah. I think it's sad as well because, like, they already, like, all her friends were, like, surprised that she was going on her own. Yeah. Because Pauline was, like, a really shy, like, quiet girl. And then she's seen her friends and her friend's like, yeah, I still can't go. And then her friend's gone to this dance and probably just thought, like, oh, well, she thought I was being serious. Like, she's decided not to go now. Yeah, maybe she's gone And then she's gone to this whole dance without realising that this Pauline's been abducted. Yeah. Horrible. So, there are two stories to how Pauline was killed. And to be honest, there's always going to be conflicting views about who out of Erin and Myra are lying. So, there's like a running theme here. Myra tells one story and Ian tells another. We see that in pretty much all the crimes. But with Myra as well, it's the same story each time. So, for me, it's more likely that she's lying because she's obviously rehearsed this. I think she also, like, eventually, when she gets sent to prison and she's been there a few years, she eventually changes her story. Yeah, yeah. So, as Myra told it, when she pulled alongside Paulie and she offered her a lift... Once Pauline was in the van, Hindley asked her to help in searching Saddleworth more for an expensive glove that she'd lost. Reed agreed and they drove there. When Brady arrived on his motorcycle, Hindley told Reed that he would just be helping in the search. Hindley later claimed that she waited in the van while Brady took Reed onto the moor. Brady returned alone after about 30 minutes and took Hindley to the spot where Reed lay dying. Reed's clothes were in a disarray and she'd been nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat. 
including a four-inch incision across her voice box, which was inflicted with considerable force, and into which the collar of her coat and a throat chain had been pushed. When Hindley asked Brady whether he'd raped Reed, Brady replied, Of course I did. Hindley stayed with Reed while Brady retrieved a spade that he'd hidden nearby in a previous visit, then returned to the van while Brady buried Reed. In Brady's account, Hindley was not only present for the attack, but participated in the sexual assault also. But his version of the events isn't vastly different to what Myra had already said. But, again, from what he said, she's a lot more involved than she makes out. Which, I don't know why he'd lie. She's got more to lose, I think. Yeah, she's lied with the idea that she will one day get parole. Yeah. Um... Um, so yeah, as Ian told the story, well, it's not a story, but you know what I mean. As Ian told it, the signal that the couple had worked out was that Brady would follow behind Hindley as she drove. Once she spotted a potential victim, she would slowly pull alongside them and if Brady approved, he would flash his headlights twice. When Hindley pulled alongside Pauline, Brady gave his approving signal and she offered Pauline a lift to the dance that she was going to. Once Reed was in the van, Hindley asked her to help in searching Saddleworth Moor for an expensive lost glove. Reed agreed and they drove there. When Brady arrived with his motorcycle, Hindley told Reed that he would just be helping in the search, like with her story. But this is where their stories differ. According to Brady, after some searching, the two overpowered Pauline. Brady began to undress her and while Hindley held her down, he proceeded to rape her. Pauline obviously put up a fight through this and begged them to stop, which they obviously didn't do. And after they had assaulted her, they allowed her to get dressed again. As Pauline was putting on the necklace that her mum had allowed her to borrow for the dance, Hinley spotted it and snatched it off her, stating, You won't be needing this where you're going. So it's said that Brady wanted the murders to be a complete surprise to the victims and for them to not see it coming. So with Hindley having said this to Pauline, Brady instantly reacted and slapped Hindley across the face. <laughs> I so, can just imagine like the awkward silence that yeah. ran through all three of them. Like like the 10 seconds of shock. <laughs> They're like, supposed to be a team. They've both just fucking raped you and now he's slapping her on the face and you're just standing there. There's poor girl. Yeah. And she's like, what the fuck is going on? So as an instant reaction, Hindley turned to Brady and told him, she's Pauline Reed." It turned out that Hindley broke their first rule. She was connected to Pauline. In fact, Pauline was friends with Hindley's younger sister, Maureen. Apparently, Pauline had been seen with her younger sister's boyfriend hanging around with him. This angered Hindley, and while she wanted to take out on David, who was the sister's boyfriend, she obviously took this into account when choosing Pauline as their victim. Dun, dun, dun. She's broken the first rule of Ian Brady's school. Yeah. So, obviously, it was already too late to turn back on the plan, but even more so now, because Pauline knew who they both were. Mm. Apparently, Brady went to collect the shovel, and when he returned, he found Hindley holding a knife and Pauline covered in blood. According to him, Hindley had stabbed Pauline with a blunt knife, and then, because it got stuck in her chest, because it was so blunt, she proceeded to beat her. Calling for him to help her, Brady proceeded to slit her throat twice. He claimed that she died almost instantly, as if that matters. Mm. Like, 
they tortured her for god knows how long so after this brady claimed that the pair were a united force and not two conflicting entities and that hindley recorded the periodic homicides as binding them ever closer when so like their souls were combined is exactly when two became one okay so that's victim one poor mm-hmm. Pauline and victim two is John Kilbride so on the morning of November 23rd 1963 John had been earning pocket money by packing up stalls at Ashton Market while there sitting with some friends and eating broken biscuits he was approached by Hindley who asked him to help her load some boxes into her car I think this was like 5.30pm mm. so it's not dark yet but it's getting it's nearly home time for John John agreed and um, she Myra offered him a lift home saying that his parents might worry that he was out so late Ian and Myra also promised him a bottle of sherry as Brady was driving once Kilbride was inside Hinley's hired Ford Angler car Brady said they would have to make a detour to their home for the sherry on their way home, Hindley once again used the ruse of wanting to find a lost glove she had dropped on Saddleworth Moor. Brady said that by the time they had begun to reach the moor, he could tell that John was feeling nervous. So what did you say? It's like half an hour away. Yeah. So say they, say they pick him up at half five. They, they're they already taking a detour to their fucking random house. And mm. now they're taking another detour to the moor. It's like, what, six, maybe half six. It's getting dark because yeah. it's November. It's yeah. definitely dark. But I can't understand. So if you're in that area, you know, even as a kid, that Saddleworth Moor is a bit of a drive away. Mm. Why are you agreeing to go there? I don't know. It's because it's like the 60s. People trusted yeah. people then. And I suppose and in I think these also, areas, it was the strangers you looked out for. And everyone knew these two because yeah. they lived there. And also because it's not just Ian. It's Ian and Myra. Like, you trust women. Yeah. Never trust a woman. Never. Especially not one with peroxide blonde hair. <laughs> and knee-high boots. Um, so, yeah, I think the the reality of it hits John when they get there and he's thinking, fuck, I've gone to the moors with these yeah. two random people. So, their stories are different again. So, Hinley says that they reached the moor and Brady took Kilbride with him while she waited in the car. Surprise, surprise, she waited in the car. She is innocent. Mm. Brady sexually assaulted Kilbride and tried to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade before strangling him with a shoelace or string. Whether or not Hindley was there, I mean, the stories differ. We haven't. I couldn't really find any information about what Ian's side of the story no, was to this. No. But the fact that Hindley is waiting in the car or waiting the in the kitchen or doing something else like. She's never actually there, which is very fucking convenient. When 8 o'clock came, John's family called the police, but by, by then, John had already been raped, strangled, and his body had been dumped in the moors. A photograph Brady took of Myra holding her pet dog at the edge of schoolboy's grave led detectives to the site two years later. So he his body wasn't found until, like, they got arrested. Is that right? Um, I don't know if they'd been arrested, but... Well, they must have, because it was the yeah, photo because then, Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. this whole time, John's body is, like, in the moors, and... I think it's just so sad, because, like, these families live so close. Yeah. 
and they didn't know like he's out there on the moor and the, the moors are like for anyone who doesn't know the moors are like vast expanses of just land yeah and nothing I think Wuthering Heights yeah Wuthering yeah. Heights Wuthering Heights big right. vibes so can you just imagine like for a second like your son's gone missing and two years gone by and they finally found a body and you didn't know this whole time he's out there alone on the moors he's half an hour away so horrible Whether to imagine like, they couldn't save him but they could have given him some peace mm. so early in the evening of the 16th of june 1964 12 year old keith bennett who was on his way to his grandmother's house in Longsight, manchester where he was supposed to be staying for the night while his mum went to the bingo he walked across stockport road and when he got to dallas street he was lured into the van by hinley who asked him to help her with some boxes hinley claimed that brady was in the back seat Although Brady always claimed that he followed along behind her on his motorcycle. and I tend to believe that. Yeah, definitely. Like, Imagine getting into a van and Brady, this fucking creeper, is sat in the back seat. But also, like, why are you asking a 12-year-old for help when you've got a grown man there? Like, yeah, that's true. So, um, she drove to a lay-by on Saddleworth up more and Brady went off with Bennett, supposedly looking for the lost glove. Again, about 30 minutes later, Brady returned alone, carrying the spade he'd hidden earlier, and in response to Hindley's question, said that he had sexually assaulted Bennett and strangled him with a piece of string. We all know who's to say in this part of the story, don't Obviously, we? Obviously, Myra was sat in the car. Obviously. The couple didn't admit to killing Keith until 1984, and the boy's body was never found. His mother, Winnie... Regularly searched the moors looking for her son. Before their deaths, the couple were countlessly asked to reveal the location of Keith's body. There are photographs of the pair in an area of the moor that some believe to be the location of Keith's body, but it's never been identified. Either the couple wanted one final piece of control over the situation, or they just didn't know themselves, which I find hard to believe. Because it's not as kill- as if they killed 60 kids. Yeah. I don't know, though. The Moors is fucking massive. Yeah. I don't know because I've never been there, but could you ever go to the same place twice? Maybe. If you've walked half an hour away from the car. I suppose if you're not walking in a straight line as well. I don't know. If you're, like, turning... But also, 20 years has passed, and they're, like... They've spent 20 years in prison, and they've kind of lost their fucking marbles. So maybe sure. they genuinely don't remember. Maybe. Anyway, Winnie died in 2012 without getting the peace that she craved, a proper burial for Keith. A small memorial plaque for Keith and Winnie now sits on the moor with the inscription, To Winnie and Keith, may you both rest in peace. Keith will come home. Again, like I did in the last recording, I just got chills. Oh, it makes me sad. Oh. Because, like, like, it's like what I said with John just now, like, he was out there for two years all alone, but, like, Keith's still out there all alone. Yeah. Today, with Winnie having passed away, his brother Alan now fights to keep Keith's memory alive. So, on the anniversary of his disappearance <laughs> this year, Alan wrote, On this day, June 16th, 1964, four days after his 12th birthday, Keith was going to spend the night at our grand's house. My mother was going to the bingo, and she walked with Keith to the zebra crossing at the busy Stockport Road. It is and always will be very hard to accept that later that night... While the rest of us slept safe and sound in our beds, it was not until the following morning that we all discovered that Keith had disappeared. When my gran got to my mother's house, 
The following morning, I heard the question, where's Keith? Neither my gran nor my mother had a telephone at the home. My mother thought Keith had arrived at my gran's house, and my gran thought that Keith had changed his mind and decided to stay home instead. Oh. Oh, okay. I will never forget the confusion that morning that quickly turned into complete panic and terror. We grew up with terror, thoughts and fears of that morning, and it was to be over 20 years until we discovered, or rather had confirmed, that Keith had been a victim of Brady and Hindley, something the police and us as a family had always thought to be the case. So. My heart's broken. It's horrible, isn't it? Mm. Okay. So, we're on to the fourth murder. Mm-hmm. And this is horrendous, um, and... This is just your warning. Yeah. You might want to skip this one. Yeah. So this is Leslie Ann Downey. So. The couple were quiet for the rest of the year until Boxing Day in 1964. For anyone not in or from the UK, Boxing Day is the day after Christmas. So the 26th of December. It's typically spent eating leftover Christmas dinner, children playing with their toys and families spending the day with those that they didn't see on Christmas Day. It's relaxed. All the shops are closed and many people treat it as like a chilled out Sunday kind of vibe. This particular Boxing Day, however, saw a fairground open near Leslie Ann Downey's home. She was just 10 years old at the time and had planned to go to the fair with her brother Terry West. But he got ill with the cold that morning and his mother said he should stay home. So instead, a neighbour agreed to take Leslie with her and her children. But for some reason, at some point, Leslie ended up on her own. Brady and Hindley visited the same fairground and noticed that 10-year-old Leslie was alone. They approached her and deliberately dropped some shopping where they were carrying, then asked her for her help in taking the packages to their car and then to their home. So for some reason she agrees. I'm not sure why. Mm. But she goes with them anyway. So at the house, and this isn't their house, this is Hindley's house with her grandma. Yeah. So they arrive at the house um, and Downey is undressed, gagged and forced to pose for photographs before being raped and killed, perhaps strangled with a piece of string. Hinley later maintained that she went to fill a bath for Downey and found her dead when she returned. Brady claims that Hinley killed Downey, so as usual, Hinley is innocent. But this, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, so we'll get back to it at the end. At the end, we'll talk about it. Um, although we know that Hindley's side of the story is obviously shit, um, most of the words that come out of her mouth often are, let's be honest. So, not only did they both torture this girl and put her through the unspeakable ordeal, they also audio recorded themselves undressing, assaulting and raping her. The 16-minute tape has only ever been heard by the police, those in court and Leslie's own mother, who had to listen to this recording in order to positively identify her. So, what I was saying was, Hindley is always very conveniently not there, and she's saying she's running a bath, so she's, so at first she's like, oh, I was running a bath, I didn't see anything, and then this tape comes out, and then she's like, oh yeah, I was there, we took photos of her, but then I went to run a bath for her. Yeah. What? So you, like, you let him take photos of this girl and, like, rape her and whatever, and then you went and run a bath for her. And then you can hear her screaming well, and you didn't help her. I think she was running the bath, so once Ian had killed her, they were going to clean all the evidence off her. Yeah, but her claim is like, I was yeah, running a bath oh, for her. I I, to be honest with you, I don't even believe that she ran a bath at all. 
No. But, yeah. Um, obviously, me and Lydia haven't listened to this tape, um, but a number of media reports were in the courts when it was played, and they have written down what was said. So over the next few minutes, I'll be reading the passages from the Telegraph news article describing not only the tape recording, but also the court and the atmosphere as the tape was being played during the trial. Just a warning, it's kind of hard, it's hard to listen to, and if you'd rather not, um, just skip five minutes. It should also be noted that during the recording, the little drummer boy, um, that Christmas song, is playing in the background, which makes it like haunting, it's horrible. Mm. And I think one officer that like was working on the case said that after he listened to this, like if he ever heard Little Drummer Boy, like it made him feel like sick, physically yeah, sick. He'd have like a physical reaction to it. So, Sir Elwyn Jones, who led the prosecution, said the voices of a man and woman were those of Brady and Hindley. Setting the scene, Sir Elwyn said there were various noises, sounds of a door banging, crackling noises, heavy steps across the room, recording noise followed by a blowing sound into the microphone, and then footsteps. There were the voices of a child and a woman, a child's scream and cries and man's voice. At one stage, the girl said she was called Leslie Ann. The man said he wanted to take some photographs. The Telegraph reported that the tapes were played at full volume and a loud scream echoed through the court after several minutes, during which only footsteps and soft voices in the background could be heard. The phrase... Let me go and please were audible. And also, don't undress me, will you? And I want to see my mummy. At one point, there was a blowing sound into the microphone and a child screaming, don't, and mum, ah. The tape ran on. The woman, later identified as Hindley, says, shut up. The child says, please, God, help me, ah, please, oh. The woman says, come on. And the child says, please, please, oh. Then faintly, help. I cannot while you have hold of my neck. Oh, followed by a scream, and then she says, help. There were screams and gurgles. The woman states, sits down and be quiet. And the man, later identified as Brady, says, go on. At another point, the woman says, hush, hush, shut up, or I'll forget myself and hit you one, I'll hit you one. In another passage, Leslie Ann pleaded, can I tell you something, I must tell you something. Take your hands off me for a minute, please. Please, mum, please, I cannot tell you. I cannot breathe. Please, God, why? Why are you doing this? What are you going to do with me? The man says, I want to take some photographs, that is all. And the child says, I want to see my mummy. Honest to God, I will swear on the Bible. I have got to go because I am going out with my mum. Please, please help me, will you? The man says, the longer it takes you to do this, the longer it takes you to get home. At another point, Brady says, if you don't keep that hand down, I'll slit your neck. As the telegraph noted... The court was still in quiet. Suddenly a child's scream and a cry filled the room. It's so obvious that Myra's talking complete bullshit when she says that she was out running a bath. She's obviously 100% involved in the murder, and the audio tape proves that. The following morning, Brady and Hindley drove Downey's body to Saddleworth Moor and buried her, naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. Leslie's mother died in 1999, but before she died, she vowed to haunt Hindley from beyond the grave, stating, I will still be a thorn in her side after I pass on. I will haunt that woman for the rest of her life. Just awful, isn't it? <laughs> I was looking at you like, are you okay? Just horrible, isn't it? Like, how can you mm. do that to a little girl? And it's like, they've said that she's calling her mum because she's trying to... 
I don't know, make Myra have some sort of emotional reaction. Yeah, so at first she's like, like please, I need to see my mum, and then it's not working. And so it's like, I'll try and distract her. Like, she doesn't oh, accidentally... I've got to tell you something, let me tell you something first. She like, doesn't, like, accidentally call them mum. She's saying that to, like, see if they care. It's quite smart, really. I mean, it is, but also, but also like... I don't know, but she's ten, so she's not going to be, like, thinking this, but, like, they're fucking psychopaths, they don't care. But, like, it's also, like, they say that if you're ever, like, held at gunpoint or about to be attacked or whatever tell your attacker as much about you as possible mm, yeah so it like humanizes you a bit yeah and hopefully it gets them to at least hesitate because mm. that can hopefully be what saves you whether like whether she knew this or not like she clearly oh, what's the word she clearly acted on that whether yeah. she knew that that's what happens or not in a lot of those situations obviously it didn't work for her but she was that desperate she was about she would say anything to them mm. Yeah, it's, it's just, just so heartbreaking, sad. isn't it? But I think it's also interesting because that's once they get this tape, like there's no way anyone's believing Myra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just makes all of her other stories before like so much less credible. Like she might have actually genuinely been in the car every time. Yeah. But you've now lied about this one, so no one's gonna believe you for the yeah. rest of the time. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna come on to the last murder. And this is of Edward Evans. On the evening of the 6th of October 1965, Hindley drove Brady to the Manchester Central Railway Station, where she waited outside in the car whilst he selected a victim. After a few minutes, Brady reappeared with the company of a 17-year-old Edward Evans, an apprentice engineer who lived in Ardwick, to whom he introduced Hindley as his sister. They drove to Brady and Hindley's home at 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, Hattersley, Cheshire, where they relaxed over a bottle of wine. At some point, Brady sent Hindley to fetch David Smith, the husband of Hindley's younger sister, Maureen. David was also the boyfriend that they thought Pauline had been involved with, but she obviously wasn't. So, can I just... A few things. So, first, Edward Evans, he... But what he was supposed to meet his friend, wasn't he? And his friend cancelled, so he was like mm-hmm. annoyed. And then Brady like conveniently bumps into him, and I think the whole what's that word called when you're like uh, the whole insinuation is that a word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the whole idea is like we oh, come back home with me and we'll have sex because Brady was like openly yeah, they bisexual. Were both, they were both so bisexual, weren't they, Henley and um, Brady? So I think when Myra goes and gets um, David. He actually sleeps with Edward, I think, according to Brady. Oh, okay. He's, like, admitted to that. He's like, yeah, Oh, I didn't sex. know that he'd actually slept with him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Just a little info. Um, but, yeah, so Hindley's little sister and her brother-in-law didn't... Like, I think they lived around the corner from them. Like, yeah, and I don't... really weren't that far away. I don't think that they were that close really anymore. I think growing up, like, Myra and Maureen were really close, but... And David's was, like, really... In like infatuated, I guess, with Ian. Like yeah, he kind of thought got... he was like amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Maureen and David had a baby, I think, at this point. Yeah, they did. Like yeah. a really like a three month old or yeah. something. Yeah. And obviously Myra and Ian just fucking hate children. So yeah. I think they kind of drifted a bit when Maureen had this baby. Yeah. Anyway, not relevant, but just putting it in there. Yeah. So Hindley returned with Smith and told him to wait outside for her signal 
a flashing light. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door and was met by Brady, who asked if he wanted to come in for the miniature wine bottles. He left him in the kitchen, saying that he was going to collect the wine. Smith later told police, I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched, and then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room, and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch, and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards, and Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hands. He was holding it above his head, and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a de- it was a terrible hard blow. It sounded horrible. Smith then watched Brady throttle Evans with a length of electrical cord. Brady sprained his ankle in the struggle and Evans' body was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own. So they wrapped it in plastic sheeting and put it in the spare room. Smith agreed to return the following morning with the baby's pram for them to use in transporting Evans' body to the car before disposing of it on the moors. He arrived home about 3am and asked his wife to make him a cup of tea which he drank before vomiting and telling exactly what he'd witnessed. At 6.10am that morning, he waited for daylight and armed himself with a screwdriver and a bread knife in case Braden was planning to intercept him. Smith called the police from the phone box on the estate. He was picked up by a police car from the phone box and was taken to Hyde Police Station where he told the officers what he'd witnessed that night. During the 1990s, Hindley claimed that she took part in the killings only because... Brady had drugged her, was blackmailing her with pornographic photos he'd taken of her, and had threatened to kill her younger sister Maureen. In 2008, Hindley solicitor Andrew McCoy reported that she told him, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime is worse than Brady's because I enticed the children and they would never have entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself worse than Brady. You're a fucking liar because you tried to get out of it every chance you got. When did she admit that? Um, well, it was before she died, but her solicitor only... Um, was it after her parole had been denied? Probably. How fucking convenient. But So she, deli- de- she died in 2002. Yeah. And her solicitor only reported what she'd said to him in 2008. Uh, so I don't know when she told him that. Can we just... Going back to this Edward Evans one... Myra's grandma was upstairs the whole time. Was it? Which yeah, one that was, was the time. And because they heard... She... The grandma said that she heard Evans, I think, scream. Yeah. And she was like, what's going on down there? And Myra was like, nothing, stay upstairs. Really? Because I knew she'd been sent away for one of them, but I wasn't sure whether it was Leslie or... Yeah, I think she had, but then she was there for Edward. But like, how fucking disrespectful. And I think... I mean, they don't really ask about disrespect. Also, some few, few other bits. I know myra also tried to deny that she was in the room with edward evans i don't know if we're going to talk about it in the next part maybe it's in the next bit but she tries to say like yeah i was in the kitchen yeah but obviously david's like no you weren't and also (laughs) the police were like well your shoes have blood on them she was like yeah well i left my shoes in the living room and they were like well why is there no blood inside the shoes yeah like (laughs) she's just such a fucking liar but yeah so this is obviously going to be a two-parter because just a whole load of shit happens after this. Like, it's not an open and closed situation, is it? Like, no. 
So in the second part, we're going to... Yeah, this is the thing as well, because their lives don't stop when they get sent to prison. This is why I they're think people so say that they're the most famous killers, because I think so. they don't just lie down and take it. And I think, yeah, there's so much, like, news news reportings on them when they go to prison. Like I'm pretty sure. They just love it. They're like... They're, like, in love with each other for a bit, and then they're fighting against each other for a bit, and then Ian's like, he doesn't care anymore. Um, so, yeah, that's a nice little uh, bit to end on, I think. Yeah, so next week we're going to talk about their lives in prison. Yeah. Once they've been arrested and caught. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't end here. Jesus, it doesn't even end after they've died. No, that's true. It's still going on. I mean, obviously, because we're still fucking talking about it. Yeah. We're the reason. We're part of the problem. I know, honestly. (laughs) To these people, I only commit crime because they know people will be interested in it. Yeah, probably. It's their way to be famous. Yeah. Anyway. Um, So, yeah. I mean, it's not likely you're going to have enjoyed enjoyed those details, but I hope you at least found it interesting. Yeah, I hope maybe it taught you something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If your new boyfriend tries to make you read Mein Kampf, run the other way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was trying to think of another thing to say then, but they're all fucking weird. Don't buy guns. Yeah. Don't run the bath while your boyfriend's trying to kill someone. Or just, if he does try to kill someone, call the police. Yeah. Don't just stand there. Do not help him. Because it's never going to work out We're all right. <laughs> okay, we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye. Bye.